a family where everyone knows, experiences, is empowered to ignite the love of Christ. Do you know what that is? That's your vision statement. Yeah, I think the battle's half won. If you really believe that and do that, we're, we're on a good path today already. Um, my name is Paul Morelli. I'm a member of Lane's Mills United Methodist Church in Brockway. I'm a certified lay minister, a lay speaker, and a certified lay evangelist. Uh, note the word lay. And I point that out uh, on purpose because I'm not one of them. You know those pastors, uh, like Pastor John back there. <laughs> My boss is here. Uh, he's the chair of the Conference Evangelism Board, and uh, he kind of is over me. So uh, it's kind of neat that he got a chance. He's on vacation. He's here. Um, I have a vision for a lay movement. Um, it's one like brought the Methodist Church into existence. I know you're not Methodist, but I am. And uh, by the way, I want you to know that the Methodist Church was started in 1760 by two lay preachers. Catch that? Lay preachers. I just want you to know that, okay? And I believe in my heart, with all of my heart, we can do it again. And I don't care what denomination you are. I really don't. Um, Harvard did a study, and according to a group that doesn't share our agenda, has stated that you can influence a culture with only 3.5% of the population. You reach what's called a tipping point, and uh, the movement takes on a life of its own and can't almost be stopped. Uh, Jesus started and ordained a movement in his name and for his sake and commanded us to do it to the ends of the earth, and currently I don't know that we're doing it in our own backyard. Um, this other 3.5% of the population has been building a movement that has been changing the culture with a message that contradicts the Christian worldview all around us. And we, the Christian church, have not been doing our job or they wouldn't have stood a chance. According to the latest statistics, all Protestant denominations account for 43% of the U.S. And if you add in our Catholic brothers and sisters, we have a, a whopping 63% of the culture. And that's after a 12% decline over the last 10 years. And if you really want to get picky, okay, let's just count the born-again evangelicals, the people who profess to know Jesus as Savior as a born-again evangelical. They account for 25% of the population. If 3.5% can change the culture, what's happened that we haven't changed it and even allowed a contradictory worldview to take over the culture right under our noses? That's what my message is about today. Uh, by the way, uh, you guys have started off uh, uh, in, in a great way. Your, your music, your uh, testimony, uh, communion, um, and I could just almost just do a, a benediction. We could go home. It's been great. So, But I want you to hear from my heart what's happening around us, okay? Um, by the way, Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 12 say, Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelist, the pastors, and the teachers, the five main gifts of leadership in the church. Listen to this. I'm an evangelist, okay? This is my responsibility. Their responsibility, these five gifts, is to equip God's people to do his work, God's work, and build up his church, the church, the body of Christ. My job and the pastor's jobs are to build you up and help you to do his work. That's your job, okay? It's not the pastor's and the evangelist's job. So, we've prayed, we've worshipped, we've had communion. Pray with me also right before we uh, get into the main message. 
Lord, first I ask that you cleanse our minds from a week's worth of pollution and distraction. Help us focus on you for 30 to 40 minutes. Second, I ask that you let your Holy Spirit invade this room and cleanse it from all evil. Uh, Bind Satan and his workers from this space and protect it and let it be safe for us to be with you for the next hour. Lastly, I ask that you convict and convince that you soften stony hearts and work in hardened consciences, including my own. Have your way here today. In the name of Jesus and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to uh, base my message today off of a scripture in Matthew 25. Um, I'm going to paraphrase the front half, and then I want to kind of hone in on the, uh, the end of it uh, around verse 24. Um, it's, it's a familiar par- uh, parable, if you know it. Uh, it starts off, uh, God's kingdom is like, and then it goes through several examples, and then it says, is also like a man going on an extended trip, and you know the story. There's, there's this man who has assets, and he has three servants, and he gives one 5,000 uh, talents, one 2,000 talents, and one 1,000 talent based on their ability. And then uh, he goes away for a long time, and then he comes back to settle up accounts. And the first one comes in, hey, you gave me five, here's five, I've doubled your money. Great job, from now on you're going to rule with me. Uh, the second one said, hey, you gave me two, here's two more, you got four. Same thing, great job. And I want to tune in now, the last servant. Um, and I'm going to read uh, from Eugene Peterson's, paraphrase the message, if you will. I love the way he brings this out. The servant given 1,000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound down to the last cent. The master was furious. It's terrible to live that way. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done was to invested my son with the bankers and I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this, play it safe, who won't go out on the limb. Throw him into utter darkness. Wow. Some passages are easy to hear and encouraging, and some of them kind of step on our toes, and this is one of them. If you profess to be a Christian, a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a steward. That's one who's responsible for taking care of someone else's property. You are a steward of Jesus' church. His bride, he calls it. He cares that much for it. And I have a question I want to pose to everybody listening here who call on the name of Jesus as their Savior and king or lord, which implies that we're his servants or slaves. It's a Greek word named, uh, called doulos, which means slave. As stewards of Jesus' church, his bride, are you content with the state of the church currently? And I'm not talking about this church or the Methodist church. I'm talking about his church, the church universal, Okay. Are you content with the state of his church currently? And that's a rhetorical question because I would think everybody here would say, no, I'm not, okay? So that leads to a second logical question. If we're to equip you, the laity, to do the work of building up his church and it's not where it should be, what could you personally do to change the direction 
his church is heading. Okay? Think about that. Now, I'm going to answer that for you, in my opinion, okay? I would suggest what we need is a movement to revitalize the institution. A movement to revitalize the institution. A man named Winfield Bevins wrote an article titled Six Marks of the Wesleyan Movement, and he opens it with the following comment. There is no better example of a successful church multiplication movement in the West than the Methodist movement of the 18th and 19th centuries. This is how my denomination uh, began, is through this movement, okay? As we cover these six marks um, in your bulletin, there's a handout there, okay? And there's a couple questions with each of the marks. I know I'm going to cover a lot of stuff fairly fast today, and it's going to be hard to remember, so I want you to take that sheet and look at those questions as I cover those marks and say, is this something that I need to think about, I need to repent of, I need to do uh, or not do, whatever? And at the end, I'm going to use this sheet as a challenge to you to do something different than what you've been doing. Okay, If we want to change, we have to do something different. I hope that makes sense. The second thing I want you to think about is that the concept of all six of these marks that I bring up are something that you and me, the laity, can do. Okay, We don't need the institution or the pastor to do them. It's not that you don't need a pastor, you do. You need a pastor and a teacher, but not to do these six things. Okay, And these six things can change the church. All right, let's move on with it. Mark number one of a movement. Movements begin as people's lives are changed by a fresh encounter with the living God. Sometimes the change is a conversion experience. We heard about one of them just a few minutes ago. And other times it's personal renewal that results in a radical commitment to follow Christ. There's usually a tipping point where the transformation occurring in the lives of individuals, that's lay people, as they embrace this vision for renewal begins to spread like wildfire. In our modern churches, uh, many of us have forgotten the status of humankind without this spiritual conversion of their souls. We need to rediscover the why of evangelism. It's been said, people lose their way when they lose their why. Why is what makes us motivate to do things and sacrifice. In our culture, it is not politically correct to say that people are lost. But the Bible teaches that. Hebrews 9.27 has fallen into disuse in the church. It says, and just as each person is destined to die once, after this comes the judgment. That's what the Bible says. I didn't say it. I said it just now because the Bible says it. The Bible says we are born spiritually dead. We're separated from our creator God due to an act of treason that we did in Genesis 3. You can read about it if you want. And if nothing changes... We pass from this life into eternity, spiritually dead and separated from our Creator. I want to throw an illustration out there. This gets me into trouble sometimes, but I want you to know it came from a good source. Uh, my pastor, Maggie Foreman, <laughs> in a moment of, uh, uh, of uh, weakness, <laughs> shared with me that she liked a modern movie that most people would be shocked at. And it was called The Walking Dead. What's The Walking Dead about? Who knows? 
Zombies, you got it, okay? What's a zombie? They're walking around somewhat alive, but there's nobody home, right? What I want you to do, I want you to picture, this is where you're going to get in trouble, I want you to picture the world around you, okay? Good people, bad people, but not saved people. And they're walking around physically alive, doing good things and bad things, and spiritually nobody's home. They are spiritually dead. They don't understand spiritual things, okay? In the Methodist Church, we have a term called provenient grace that said God's Holy Spirit can open their minds so they can understand the gospel when it's presented to them. But otherwise, they have no clue. They go about life, and that's it, okay? And when one of those spiritually dead people becomes alive for the first time, that change makes people take notice. Again, you've heard a testimony of that just a bit ago. I'll tell you a couple others. I have a friend, uh, Rich Eddings, a, a logger, rough and tough guy, was a 24-7 alcoholic. And without him looking for God, God got a hold of that guy's heart in his apartment from out of nowhere, and Richie dropped to his knees, put up his hands, and says, oh God, if you don't change me, I'm going to kill myself or kill somebody else. Help me, save me, please. He's the lay leader at my home church now. Okay. When I was in high school, 48 years ago, there was a young man who professed to be an atheist and talked to other people out of being Christians, enjoyed taking on teachers or anybody he could. This guy, this guy manipulated people to get them not to believe. When I went to my last class reunion, uh, this guy was asked to give the opening prayer for the reunion. He was voted most likely not to do that by the class. <laughs> God can change people's lives. And changes like these don't just change the person, but they change the entire church as people witness the power of God in a person no one thought could change. It's contagious. Which brings me to the second mark, if you look on your sheet. Mark number two of a movement is a contagious faith. Movements become contagious when ordinary people, lay people, share their faith with others. And one of the reasons the movement grows and spreads is because it has a simple, life-changing message that ordinary people can easily understand and share with others. Revival can spread as people rediscover the simplicity of the gospel. In Christian movements, this growth often results from a renewed passion to share the gospel with others. And this passion spreads from one person to another like a contagion. Now, we understand contagions, don't we? <laughs> We've been in the midst of this for now almost two years, okay? Can you imagine, just for a moment, think about this. Can you imagine if the Christian witness was spreading so much like a contagion that people were encouraged to wear earplugs so they didn't catch the contagion. <laughs> Let's make it happen. What do you think? The Methodist Church, I, I loved when uh, Pastor um, uh, John, you, you would give your testimony, right? John? Okay, thank you. I loved when you gave your testimony. Thank you so much for doing that because in the Methodist Church, we used to have a lay witness weekend where a couple people would give their testimonies how God changed their lives. And then the evangelist would get up and tell people what caused the change and invite them to experience that change themselves. That's what happened to me 48 years ago, okay? God can change anybody's heart. I don't care how hard it is. 
I was going to say this, I almost hate to say it. This is part of my message, but your church is a bit different than I'm used to preaching to. Can you personally tell somebody your testimony and what makes the difference in your spiritual life? You know, the testimony, what I was, what happened, and what I'm becoming because of it. Can you explain the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? You can't tell somebody else the gospel, the good news of Jesus, if you don't know it yourself. The gospel, the good news, is the atoning death of Jesus our Savior, the burial and the resurrection which gives us who trust him the hope of life after death and to be with him in his kingdom. And both baptism and we just celebrated communion illustrate this atoning death. That's why we do those things, okay? Struggle with something and make it your own how you can explain this to other people. I think I've done this here before, one of the times I preached before, but I want to I go through it again. Uh, there's some people possibly watching that didn't see it before. Um, I had a vision some years ago. I was at work. Um, I'd ask God, I'd come through a rough time in my life, and I'd ask God to help me understand the biblical worldview in a way that it made sense and I could relate it to other people. And it was just a, here I am, God, help me. And I had like pieces of the puzzle. You know how you get four or five pieces together, but you don't know where they fit. And it was, that's how my mind was theologically. And about 11 o'clock at work, uh, God um, gave me, I guess, what people would call a vision. Uh, I was uh, supposed to be working, and all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, I saw this river. It was, it was wide like the Mississippi, not very deep. Uh, it went off real slow off and went over a cliff into the abyss. And uh, it was full of filth. It was, just, it was just disgusting, full of human excrement and oil and just everything you can imagine. It stunk. And there were people bobbing in the river, if you can imagine that, okay? And these people were covered with this filth. And, and one would look at the other one and he would say, hey, Look at this clean spot on my cheek. Your cheek is filthy. You're, you're not like me. You're filthy. And that one would look back and say, yeah, well, look at my elbow. My elbow's clean and yours is dirty. You're the one that's dirty, not me. I'm okay. I'm clean, okay? And as I'm watching this kind of puzzled, all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, there was this river going the other direction in midair. Don't get caught up in physics. Okay, this is a vision. You can do these things, Okay. And, and it's, it's, it's narrow and, and thicker, and it's, it's, it's crystal blue. I've never seen such beautiful water in my whole life. It just looked like a gem. And it was going the other direction above the, the first river. And as I watched, all of a sudden, the water in the river would form into an arm and a hand and would extend itself down to one of the people in the river. And that person, when they saw that beautiful blue water, and then they realized how filthy they were. They were almost embarrassed. They were ashamed, and they wanted to change, but they didn't know how. And the hand didn't grab them, but the hand offered itself to them. And if they took the hand, the hand would pull them up through the river, and they would be washed clean just like they were never dirty. And they knew they didn't make the river. They didn't clean themselves. They didn't pull themselves through the river. All they did was grab the hand. And when they would watch, and the arm and the hand would go down to somebody else, they would yell at the top of their lungs, Grab the hand! That's evangelism. 
Okay? Find a way to understand it so that you can share it. Mark number three, the Holy Spirit. Movements emphasize the person and work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Fresh encounters with the Holy Spirit create a renewed sense of spiritual vitality among the followers of Christ, which leads to personal and corporate renewal. People get excited when God shows up and does something. I want you to think about it. Evangelism, remember I said people are spiritually dead? So evangelism is raising spiritually dead people to life. And you say, but you can't do that. Okay, but we have a part in it. Uh, Francis Chan, I don't know if you know Pastor Francis Chan, but um, he has some good illustrations I just love. And He says, imagine kind of the same thing. You go to bed at night about 11 o'clock. Lord, here I am. Use me any way you want. And 1 o'clock in the morning, God wakes you up and says, um, I got a job for you. And you say, okay, I volunteer. Here I am. <laughs> and he says, I want you to go down to the cemetery and raise the dead. Whoa! <laughs> uh, don't you have something a little simpler? Okay, that's kind of tough. All you have to do is go to one tombstone and raise one person from the dead. There. How's that? <laughs> what do you do? Francis Chan says, who do you take with you? I mean, what do you need? And, you know, do you, you take somebody with a powerful testimony? I take John, and he speaks to the tombstone so they can hear his testimony. Or, or, or maybe I bring a, a football player with a great testimony. Or somebody who sings like, like angels, you know, and has a beautiful song. No, they're dead. They can't hear. Okay? You need to be, need to be in touch with the God who can make them hear and can raise them from the dead. Okay? You can't do that. If God's Holy Spirit doesn't show up, you're just talking in the wind. You've got to get that through your head. Now, what that does is it starts to make the job easier because I don't have to do the impossible part, okay? Um, I have a message I call the Three Open Prayer Evangelism, and, and a guy named Ron Hutchcraft, an evangelist, talks about this. He said, uh, uh, he prays this in the morning, Lord, open the door, open my mouth, open their heart, okay? Lord, open the door. In the Methodist terms, let your prevenient grace go before me and prepare somebody so they're ready to hear. Help me see it. Okay, i got to open my eyes and watch for the open door. Open my mouth. That's my job, okay? Give me the words to say, the right words, the wisdom that comes from you. <laughs> when I think of open my mouth, I always go back to Lane's Mills. We had a young black pastor in there that uh, was single and raised 27 foster kids. Neat guy. But he would have the kids sing with him. And he'd be playing the piano, and he would look back over his head like this at one of them and say, Open thy mouth, and that kid would just start singing out just so beautiful. Can you imagine if you're out in public, and God's Holy Spirit says, Open thy mouth. Would you speak? Think about it. Think about it. Lord, open the door. Open my mouth. Open their heart. That's God's job, to open their hearts. Take that off your plate. You don't save anybody. You didn't die for anybody. The Holy Spirit does that. So our part is to speak. We speak prophetic words of life, the gospel. <laughs> Mark Middleberg in his book, Contagious Faith, says it this way. Take a deep breath, say a quick prayer, open your mouth and blurt it out. <laughs> uh, the prophetic words of life. I want you to think about that just for a second. I don't know if you're familiar with Ezekiel 37 or not, but that's the, that's the story of uh, God in a dream shows or a vision shows Ezekiel a valley full of bleached dry bones. Okay? And, and he says 
to Ezekiel, son of man, can these uh, bones live again? And Ezekiel, he's no dummy. He says, only you know that one, Lord. I'm paraphrasing a lot here, okay? You read it for yourself later on. And God pretty much says, yeah, they can and they will live again, but Ezekiel, you have a part. You have to prophecy over the bones. I will raise them from the dead. You do your part, I do my part, okay? God has given us prophetic words of life. It's a message from God. We call it the gospel. It has the power to raise people from the dead. When God hears us speak the words, he can change their hearts and bring them to spiritual life. But we have to speak them, okay? Okay. Let's move on. Mark number four, discipleship systems. Movements develop systems for discipleship and spiritual growth. This frequently looks like some form of small group structure to facilitate ongoing spiritual growth and commitment. Uh, in the Wesleyan movement we call Methodism, we had classes and bands, and that's what they did. Uh, they were lay-led and uh, lay-attended. Um, Sunday worship. I just want to throw this out here as a challenge. I know your pastor's not here. I think he's watching, so I, I want to make sure he doesn't have a problem with this, but Sunday, we call it what? Worship. You know what worship is? It comes from Latin word, means worth ship. We gather and we tell God what he's worth. It's not about us. It's about him. Okay? Discipleship groups are about us. That's where discipleship should take on. Um, discipleship happens best in small groups and in life situations. I encourage you, if you use your spiritual gift to do some sort of ministry, try never to do it alone. Mentor somebody into what you do to replace you, if nothing else, if not just to maybe form another group to do the same thing you do. Uh, Sunday night, I've asked permission to share this. I guess I can. Uh, Bruce and Cheryl uh, opened up their home uh, for a couple hours. Bruce makes some neat pizza on a uh, a pizza oven, a wood-fired pizza oven, and we eat it and have a good time. We've got, uh, we've had Presbyterians, Catholics, United Methodists, Lutherans, atheists, and Catholic, I think we just had about everybody come. There's been about 38 to 40 people come through it. About 8 to 12 gather on any Sunday night, and we disciple, okay? We have some fun, but we discuss things. We're real with each other. We let God's gifts in the body minister each other. I'm not talking about another Bible study for more head knowledge. I'm talking about a group, a group who learns how to make disciples in this upside-down world. Uh, Francis Chan, I mentioned him before. Uh, Francis Chan started a house church in his house and grew it to a mega church of 5,000 people. When he walked away from it, people told him he was crazy, he was successful. And he says, this isn't success when 4,999 people watch one person use their spiritual gift. There's something wrong with this picture. And he now plants house churches and mentors other people. He just doesn't preach to the group, but he encourages people in the group. They all read the same scripture through the week. And then each one of them tells what they got out of it. They preach to each other. And he raises up mentors and leaders who start other groups. And it's a movement. Catch that? It's a movement. Okay. Number five, this one may be a little hard to grasp, but I want, you to, I want you to get a hold of this because this is at the bottom of it. Apostolic leadership, which basically means risk, try something new. Movements have an apostolic impulse drawn from the models and methods of the early church that empowers and mobilizes all God's people for mission. Methodism has re been referred to as a lay apostolic movement, which alludes to the recovery of ministry of every Christian believer. Okay? 
We're all to be in ministry, not just the pastor. Wesley worked to empower thousands of laity, many who became later leaders in this movement. These ordinary, non-ordained Christian men and women became the foundation as the movement spread. Apostolic means new, something new, okay? Try something new. Uh, my boss at Lakeside for seven years, Reverend Zillaver, uh, told me to do four things in house church. I always try to make it seven because seven's a perfect number, four is not, you know. He said, have you done the four yet? And I said, no. He said, then don't add three more until you do. Uh, pray daily, worship weekly, serve monthly, and then he said, act apostolically yearly. Once a year, make his church reach out somewhere where it's not reaching now. Do that, okay? Has institutional Christianity lulled you into a comfortable, safe church? I may be preaching to the choir here. I, I found an article from The Courier dated May 2nd, 2019, that described how your Dubois Alliance church came about, and it was fascinating. I gave a copy to your secretary. Um, a group of lay people led by several pastors over y some years uh, started on August 8, 1924, a development that ends where you are right here and hopefully doesn't end, but hopefully revives and does something new again. Take a risk. People in this church from its beginning took risks that got you to where you're at now. Keep the model going. Keep the record going, Okay. Do you yearn to see a difference and make a difference, but you don't know how? Do you really belong to another kingdom and you're out of place here, or are you so comfortable here that you have no interest in change? Only you can answer that. Mark number six, organic multiplication. There's a natural dynamism, he says, and excitement among the people that makes them contagious helping the movement spread widely and organically from one person to another person. We can describe the growth of movements as organic because it tends to happen naturally rather than being forced by the leadership from the top down. Okay? It's a bottom-up movement. Can we ordinary lay people dare to start a lay apostolic movement from the bottom up? What holds us back? Well, I've studied this for quite a few years now, and I'm fairly convinced there are six or seven things, and they all have to do with fear. It's always fear, okay? First, am I allowed to do this? Uh, in the Methodist Church, uh, we can't do anything unless we're certified. I'm certifiable. I have three certifications, okay? <laughs> am I allowed to do this? Jesus said so. I mean, what pastor will get mad at you for telling people about Jesus and then meeting with them to help them grow. If he does, find another church, okay? <laughs> you can do that. Jesus said so. Go do it, okay? Well, yeah, but what if I fail? Well, that's a good question, but you know, I looked in the Bible, and I don't see anywhere where I'm called to be successful. I'm only called to be obedient. I do what I'm told. Remember, he brings people back to life. He's the one who makes it successful, not me. Yeah, but what if, what if I'm all alone or not many people do this? Well, first I want you to remember that only 3.5% are needed to change a culture. Uh, and then also Matthew 28, 20, which we often misquote, by the way, where Jesus says, I am with you till the end of the age. I want, to, I want you to go back and read that today at lunch. 
And it says, as you are doing this, when he gives you the Great Commission, he says, as you are doing this, I am with you till the end of the age. Okay? So as you're doing his work, you're not alone. Look to your right. He's beside you. He's doing it with you. Okay? Yeah, but what if people, they might think I'm strange. They might look at me and think I'm weird. Okay? Who's the weirdest person in the Bible you can think of? Shout it out, anyone. Ah, yes, that's always the one I think of. John the Baptist. I mean, he wore strange clothes, he ate strange food, and if he showed up here, we'd want him to take a bath, leave the coat outside, and don't burp, okay? <laughs> and yet, what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Of all the prophets, John was the greatest. Now, I'd like when I leave today for you guys to like me. I gave a couple of you a survey to say how good of a job I did. But, but ultimately, I'm more concerned about what Jesus says when I walk out of this pulpit than what you do, okay? And I hope you are too. If he's happy with me, I really don't care what you think about me. Yeah, but what will this movement cost me? Oh, that's an easy one. It may cost you everything. I mean, get over it. You can't take it with you anyway, right? <laughs> uh, including your life. Uh, yeah, but, but I just want a comfortable, easy life now. Sorry. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, you are a part of his kingdom, a part of this movement, and his kingdom is not here. And he said that right before they crucified him and said, follow me. <laughs> That's the way it is. And then the last one, this is the one I love. But I'm too old. Okay? I'm too old. A couple of years ago, I nominated a lady who is now a lay evangelist, Donna Jensen, for the Harry Denman Evangelism Award, which in Methodism is one of the greatest evangelism awards there are. Uh, she was 78 years old at the time. Donna figured out how to use Facebook Messenger and was talking to a young 14-year-old drug addict prostitute in Pittsburgh and led her to Jesus. The girl died because of the drug issue about a week later. She was pretty sick, okay? But her sister came home from the Air Force, and her sister got a hold of Donna and says, thanks for what you did for my sister, but, but don't bother me because I'm a witch, and I go to a coven down near Lancaster, and I'm not into that stuff. So Donna writes a letter to the coven telling them how they can be out of freedom from bondage to Satan, and, and they need to leave this coven. And the leader read it out loud to the group so they could mock Donna, and five of the witches got up and walked out, and she told me that the leader died of a heart attack that week, okay? Donna is a barbarian for Jesus, okay? <laughs> Try something. I don't care how old you are. She lives in a home... Uh, I think it's the fifth or sixth floor when you go into Punxsy on the right there in one of those apartments. Her apartment looks like a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and she invites all the people in the place to come in. Do something. Find something you can do no matter how old you are. I want you to think about this. The Apostle Paul described baptism as a watery grave. Romans 6 states, Have you forgotten when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined him in his death, for we died, were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. When you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King of your life, you become a member of his kingdom and pledge allegiance to that kingdom. But you can be sure this upside-down world won't like you. But we are to mimic him, and they killed him. And he said, can you expect any better treatment? But you say, but, but this is a scary way to do church. Why? It's almost uncivilized. And I want you to suggest that we're not called to be civilized, but we're called to be barbarians. 
A barbarian is a foreigner who is uncivilized and they live in another culture and their passion is to turn that culture into their culture. That's what barbarians do. Okay? Now, I'm not suggesting you be rebellious to this world's kingdom. Romans 13 says God has ordained government to restrain evil and given them the power of the sword to do it. Okay? But I am suggesting that you, like Peter, be faithful to God's kingdom first, no matter what the cost. And also, let me make it clear, we do not fight people. People are sacred. People belong to God. That's what sacred means. They are his property. Be careful how you treat his property. People are our mission field. But ideas and philosophies are not sacred. Have at it. (laughs) Learn how to deal with the ideas and philosophies of the age and go after them with everything you've got. Paul says, We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. And Paul tells us our weapons are not carnal, which means fleshly or worldly. Our weapons are spiritual. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. Actually, no. Jesus' kingdom is right side up, and the world around us is upside down. You've got to get a hold of that, okay? We don't live for life here. We are, the Bible says we are passers through. We are sojourners, and we live life for there. The church, capital C, is not an institution. It's not a well-laid-out plan. It's not a worldly structure. His church is a called-out group of ordinary people who are a movement response, moment-by-moment response, to the direction of his messenger, the Holy Spirit, telling us where the next battle is and instructing us on how to fight it. And we need to understand and commit to this barbarian vision because if we don't, this movement will never start. It will perish before it takes off. And I want you also to understand, this may or may not be popular, but this vision, this movement is our job and it does not change. No matter who is president, no matter who likes us or dislikes us, or agrees with us or disagrees with us, or whether we're doing it in freedom or under oppression, Our job, this vision, remains exactly the same until he returns. Copying Dr. Martin Luther King's line, I have a dream of Jesus' kingdom where all of his blood-bought children take risks to build his kingdom. Are you able to see this dream? Does the vision spark some interest in you? Does it motivate you to risk and see it fulfilled? Can you hear him whisper to you, why not take a risk and see what happens? Or is your vision so dim that you've succumbed to civilized religion that takes away the risks and lulls you into inaction? If you've seen the Monty Python comedy in search of the Holy Grail, uh, King Arthur, they face this cave where this monster protects the grail and some of the knights get kind of beat up pretty bad and he takes his sword and holds it up in the air and says, Run away! (laughs) Do you find a tendency to run away from spiritual risks? Let your love for the king who gave up everything for your sakes. We celebrated it at communion. Let him clarify the dream and renew your vision and passion again. May you rediscover a love that trusts him, not for this life where we are separated from him, but a love that fully trusts him as we live and work for the life where we will be together forever. Are you starting to feel the barbarian in you rise up a little bit? Paul says nothing, not even death, can separate you from him. So why would you be afraid of anything? 
Could you love him with a reckless love that responds with, Lord, you speak, and I will do it. No holds barred. No, an institution will never do for a barbarian. Only a movement will do. The comfortable life of ease and safety will not bring fulfillment. This moment's for you. You remember that young atheist 48 years ago in high school that talked people out of believing in Jesus? That young atheist is standing before you today challenging you to take risks to serve him who died in your place on Calvary and do it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can you hear the barbarian call? If you hear him, won't you respond, yes, Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I believe you've spoken through hearts today and you're waiting for responses to you, not me. I pray that you would search this room for those responses and that you would hear hearts that would call out to you and maybe even trembling in fear would make commitments to you to do something for your kingdom, for your sake, and out of love for you. Start the movement here, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' holy and powerful and precious name, and all God's people said, Amen. I got an addiction. It's a little bit different. Before I do the benediction, I've got some books down here that I want you to uh, consider reading. One of the reasons Christians don't tell people about Jesus, even good Bible-believing Christians, is that somehow deep inside, culture has convinced us that we believe in something like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. Okay? Um, this one book is called The Story of Reality, and what it does is it helps us understand how the Christian worldview represents reality better than the other two competing worldviews out there, and there only is two other ones, really. Okay? Um, take this if it appeals to you. Read it. Start a small group. Pass it on. Uh, the book is yours for free. Just don't hold it to yourself in your library. Get somebody else to read it, okay? Uh, this one is called Relativism. The first one is written in probably eighth grade language, easy read. This one is for those uh, apologetic type people among you who are deep thinkers, okay? And this will tell you what's at the base of the culture around us and why we're having such a hard time reaching them. It's a deep read. It's worth reading too. And then these, I've left three of these. You can get these pretty cheap. But this is one of the ways I witness. It's called, uh, he did this just for you. It's written by Max Lucado. If you can read the first story in there and not cry, there's something wrong with your tear ducts. It's one of the most powerful, simple ways to relate the gospel to people. I leave them with tips. If you leave it with a tip, if you don't leave a good tip, I will come back and haunt you, okay? <laughs> don't be cheap if you leave this book with a tip, okay? But you can leave it in restaurants. I'll go outside the hospital. I'll keep a couple with me. If somebody's sitting here waiting for a car, hey, can I give you something to read while you're sitting there? About half the time they'll take them, okay? Find some tool to help you do what we're called to do, okay? Uh, my benediction. About 40 years ago, 
A guy named Larry Walters, a 33-year-old at the time truck driver, uh, lived in a small gated community just outside the LA International Airport. Uh, it was a gated community, a fenced-in community. Every house had fences around it. And he would come home from work, and he would sit on a lawn chair, uh, eat a couple of peanut butter jelly sandwiches, and drink a uh, six-pack of adult Kool-Aid. And uh, as he had done this, at some point he uh, uh, got kind of bored, and he thought, I need to do something. And so one day he attaches uh, 40-some balloons to his lawn chair, fills them full of helium, he's got a weight on it, takes a BB gun, his plan is to go up in the air, float above his neighbors and wave at them while he uh, drinks another six-pack of his adult Kool-Aid and eats another peanut butter jelly sandwiches. I think by now he's had too many already, okay? Uh, so he does it, and he cuts the weight free and immediately ascends to 11,000 feet into the landing pattern of LA International in a lawn chair. Okay, the first two pilots land and say they saw a lawn chair at 11,000 feet. They whisk off to the psychiatrist. Okay, <laughs> finally they convince somebody that there's a lawn chair up there, and they somehow get a helicopter there and get him on the ground. Okay, I don't care how, but uh, when he's on the ground, the reporter comes up and sticks a microphone in Larry's face and says, "Larry, were you scared?" He goes, "Yep." <laughs> Larry, are you going to do it again? He says, "Nope." <laughs> Larry. What made you do it the first time? He says, well, you just can't sit there. That's my benediction. <laughs> you just can't sit there. Go, barbarians, invade this world around you. Amen. Amen. Amen.